Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here at the AI conference and I am with a couple of guests this time. I am with Laura Froelich and Mo Patel with Think Big Analytics. In fact, Mo and I, we had an opportunity to meet at a conference a while back and you kind of came up to me and introduced yourself as a, a listener of the podcast, which I think that was maybe the first time that ever happened to me. And I was like, excited out of my mind <laughs> and uh, yeah yeah uh, i remember you were actually talking to the people at chainer the deep learning framework and and i was like i i recognize that voice you know and that, it's it's funny you know uh, it's a it's a very recognizable voice yeah yeah and we had an interesting conversation about the industrial ai stuff that i was working on at the time and yeah. some of the work that you were doing there so then when we saw that you and Laura were doing a presentation here at this conference in San Francisco. I thought, oh, we got to get you on the show. So welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. This is actually the first time I'm doing an interview with two guests. <laughs> so it'll be interesting uh, to just how the kind of traffic management <laughs> works. But why don't we start by having Laura, you introduce yourself. Okay, so um, currently I'm a data scientist working with Think Big Analytics, as you just mentioned. So I work on all types of projects. Like when, whenever a customer or company has a lot of data that they want to gain insight from to solve some use case, I can help them out. It doesn't have to be deep learning. Like any sort of method that tries to reveal relevant patterns using some method that makes sense given the use case and the data at hand, okay. um, we'll go with that. Before joining Think Big, I spent half a year in a research group where they um, investigated something called non-specific effects of vaccines, which is basically vaccines turn out to affect the immune system in a general way, not just protecting against the targeted disease. Okay. So very interesting research. Mm. Prior to that, I did a PhD at the Technical University of Denmark using various machine learning techniques to analyze brain activity data. Oh, wow. Yeah. So oh, um, that's sort of my background. Okay. And Mo? Yeah, I... I I'm currently the practice director for AI with Think Big Analytics, mostly looking at America's customers. And part of that is probably not as working on projects as much, but doing more of the proof of concept type work. So taking some of the most advanced things that are going out there and see if we can apply them to our clients' problems. So part of that, you know, so there is a hands-on portion of it, but then there's also the dreaded like powerpointing of, th of things kind of conversion <laughs> of like that like the highly technical stuff into people things that people will understand which is a which is a kind of a fascinating part of it because i really love that trying to lower the barriers to because you know there's a lot of hype around ai trying to lower the barriers so that people can understand that this is not terminator you know it's actually just math right and and so so that's kind of my day to day i really like doing that and my my background is i come from you know i when you, if you look at like data science ai machine learning type things uh, I come from more of the computer science side compared to like people who come from statistics or maybe from some sciences, uh, the, the hard sciences, over the years, uh, software engineering into transitioning into more math type software engineering and then, okay. and then into analytics and, and yeah. Oh, nice, yeah. nice. And so the two of you did a talk yesterday. It was actually a tutorial? Yeah, yeah. What was the tutorial about? The tutorial yesterday was an image analysis using deep learning methods, okay. in brief. So we had both a 
general introduction, making sure that everyone was on the same level, everyone agreed on what is an image, what are pixels, what sorts of values are we dealing with, and so on and so, so forth. Like, and also going into what sorts of problems can we talk about in image analysis, and then we went into more detail on one particular topic, object detection, Okay. and zoomed back out a bit in the end. Okay. So um, that's how I sort of see the whole framing of the talk. I don't know if you have anything to... Um... Yeah, I, no, absolutely. I, I think just uh, kind of look, making sure that people are aware of the computer vision basics and then, and then diving into something that is fairly cutting edge, object detection in a lot of applications out there. And, and not only the theoretical part, but also you know, in a notebook style kind of layout saying, hey, this is how you can actually do it yourself as well, right? Felt that was very compelling. And then towards the end, talked about some of the challenges around training models. You know, it's like we make it sound so easy, but to do it in uh, for real data, uh, it, there are many challenges. And so we, we talked about that and we can go into that detail if you want. Yeah, what, yeah. Are, what are some yeah, of the challenges? Yeah, I mean, so, so absolutely, you know, for example, there was a paper that came out over the, over the weekend how this team trained the ImageNet dataset in 24 minutes, right? right? And and I mean, a you little look, bit of a controversy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was of course, yeah, because uh, you know, it's like, well, they used the, that that headline was AlexNet, not ResNet, which is like more of the current state of the art, and and then what kind of hardware you use, and, and all sorts of different things. But that is exactly the type of thing, right? Is that what are all the different parameters like batch sizes and and different processors and and multi GPU, multi server. Because most of the things you see, the examples of tutorials, it's like, just run this code, right? right? But if you're in production, when you have like a million images and you need to make sure that this will train over like days and not weeks, you know, you may have to scale it. And how do you do the scaling? And those are all the challenges. That's kind of like more engineering style challenges. But then there's also challenges around annotation, right? It's like, well, this is supervised learning. You have to annotate the data. And that could mean anything from it's it's like you know simple classification kind of easy so to speak right? right where there's a picture and there's a label right now you for object detection there could be bounding boxes so you draw squares around the objects like around balls and and you know like umbrella and and things like that to make sure and then label it that this is what the object is mm -hmm. and then the, even something more advanced which is kind of drawing the polygons around the object itself which is the segmentation kind of like the holy grail of of toward getting towards being able to do object detection many challenges and and of course you can try to do it internally or externally we actually for our project we actually built a segmentation tool that allowed people to go ahead and and draw boxes around cars and and pedestrians and things like that so, you know, we, as much as we talk about the deep learning parts, right, there's all sorts of many data engineering, data prep, data cleaning, things that were, have been around in, also in the traditional data science for a while, right? So right. very much of, of a challenge. And to add to that a bit with the annotation tool that we built internally, we have that tool and we were using it internally, but our team was just not large enough to annotate enough images quickly enough, so we had to both use that and go to an external company to help get help from them to annotate all the images. And there was a lot of back and forth with them just defining their requirements. What sorts of things do we want labeled? How do we want them labeled? Like, what's the smallest size of object that we require labels on? What do we do if it's partially obscured? Like, if there's a car blocking another car? Right. Those sorts of things. Because you may have difficulties if you have a really small object 
and you label it, then during the training phase, you'll be punished. The model will be punished if you don't detect that object. But it may actually not be very interesting to detect that object at test time because small, small objects are far away. So you may want to focus on objects that are closer. So one way to handle that would be to put an extra label on small objects saying difficult. In that way, you might handle such objects differently from normally labeled objects by not punishing the model if it doesn't detect them, but also not punishing the model if it does detect them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've had some interesting conversations with folks that specialize in, in labeling data for folks and it really opened my eyes to just this process that you're describing. Like, you think of, hey, just label my, label my data. But if you're talking about images, there's all different kinds of ways that you can do it. And they have direct impact on the types of, you know, not just the types of models that you're creating in their performance, but the cost of the labeling process. Yeah, exactly. So this company that we worked with had this quite elaborate pricing scheme. I, I never really looked at the details of it, but if you increase the number of classes, you would sort of get an extra cost to the first classes as well. Okay. So you really had to consider like, or maybe can we sort of have this external company do part of the labeling and then do some uh -huh. further post-processing in our own tool. Like you needed way, a machine learning model to optimize I, the exactly. pricing for yeah. the vendor tool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, there are some interesting projects around that. You know, there's that snorkel project from the Don Lab at Stanford. They are trying to do some stuff around kind of, uh, you know, around the training data and, and okay. building, building more training data, which just reminded me another big one is uh, data augmentation, which is another thing that, you know, if your data doesn't have, an example I gave is that, having the, the road data for when it's foggy versus when it's not, right? And what if we never capture the fog based, which is which would be hard to do in San Francisco, but you know, <laughs> you know, what, what it, so, so those are all the type of things that, so luckily, you know, at least what's great is that many of, much, much of this knowledge has been encoded now where they're just in Keras, there's just a function for data augmentation. Sure, maybe you could add your own, but there is that state of the art, like might as well just use that for when you're in your training process. But these are all the things and it's like, when you think about simply, it's like, yeah, just take the images, run it through a deep learning model and out comes your, your trained model after you do all the deep learning things like generalization and, and, and loss optimization, all those things. But then there's all these other things that you have to kind of uh, worry about, yeah. And regarding data augmentation, even though people have made tools that you can sort of just use, you of course have to think about all of the data augmentation steps. Do they make sense for traffic scenes? Do you really want to flip your images horizontally to teach the model that an upside down car is also a car? Well, maybe you do, but it depends on your use case, right? Right, that would depend on your use case. Yeah. yeah. I mentioned the action movies, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you may want to get those <laughs> upside down cars, yeah. And so these are, these are just some of the issues that you run into in the training phase of building and deploying a deep learning model. And then there's the whole, you know, how do you actually get this out into the wild to do inference? Like, are there, you know, best practices, tips, tools of the trade or, you know, tricks that you've come across for that? Yeah, I mean, actually, as much, as, as much knowledge there is out there about the training aspects of it, there's actually not as much. And something that, like even, even traditional machine learning in production I think we always, we heard this thing about data science that like there's not a, you know, there's a lot of talk about it, but the in production is still not, you know, you could do a survey and you could probably find that only maybe 
of all the people who actually say they do data science, only 25 to 30% may be actually putting into production. And then once you get to deep learning, that's, that, could, that number could start even going lower. And I think that's just because, as you were saying, that there are, there's a whole different set of challenges when you're trying to put models into production, right? So number one, where are you going to put it? Are you going to put it on some beefy servers in a data center? then maybe you have lesser problems because you could take those big gigabyte-sized models and, and, and distribute them across containers and kind of a lot of the traditional way web apps are served. But then you start talking about, well, we're going to do mobile. Well, that's a, a, you know, that becomes another challenge. How do you compress the models, maybe quantization, you know, lowering the floating point and things like that. So, so, you know, that's another, and, and somebody actually asked this question, they're like, oh, so can I take this and put it into a car to, to you know, do this? And we are like, there's a lot more that will, that will go into it before you be able to do that. So the training is definitely challenging, but being able to serve the models at scale brings in kind of all your traditional DevOps and data ops, kind of bring it all in, model management, version control of the models and data lineage, traceability. Everything that we've been discussing for any other data science type things, those are all bring they are back on the table, right? And how complex those those can be. Are there emerging or accepted tools or open source projects for doing that kind of thing? I know that, you know, some of the folks, some of the vendors that focus on, you know, machine learning platforms, they've got some of that stuff built in or integrated into their tool set, but it's all like, you know, within that tool set. Are there you know, is there a kind of an open source model management framework, for example, that's kind of emerging as a standard, or does it have to be kind of custom cut for an individual use case? At least I haven't come across. I know we built one internally. Yeah, from just our, a lot of our projects, right? Yeah. Because we saw this need of model management. And, you know, it's internally called Think Deep, you know, okay. for managing models. You know, it's... Uh, Maybe, maybe it will become open source, you know, you know how these things go. Uh, you know, I think big, we have tried to make things open source, for example, the Kylo framework for data lakes, you know, so this could be another path on that roadmap. But, you know, there's a lot of polishing that needs to be done before it gets. So well, folks so, yeah. should reach out to you if they want to get their hands on this open source yeah. management. Po possibly, possibly. <laughs> I, I'm not the developer on it, so, so I can definitely put in touch. But I have not come across, there, there are definitely some projects, once again, the formerly AmpLab, the UCB Rise now, right, and then and then Stanford Don, right? They they have I can't remember the the names of the projects off my top of my head, but I've seen that in that's in their program agenda for being able to serve large scale machine learning models, and you can consider deep learning into that into that. And I will you know I'm not not to do a commercial plug, but that's a, that's actually one of the things that we are also focused on because when we look at things, it's like yeah, training is is there, but we work with traditional customers, enterprise customers who, who want to put all that stuff into production because all the invest and investment they make on AI or deep learning data science is useless unless they actually put the models into production, right? So building the tooling around that, monitoring the models and all of, the, all of those things are, are, are interpretability is a huge part. All of those being able to kind of have a one stop shop for that is very attractive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's commercial aspects to it. Interesting, interesting. So we, before we got started, we mentioned a few use cases that you would be able to kind of talk to us about and, and walk us through. And the first one is one that you worked on, Laura, as a traffic project that you worked on with an automotive parts manufacturer. And it sounds like this was in some ways an inspiration for the session, the tutorial that you did here. Can yes, you tell us about very that much. one? So, um, so this project was for an assisted driving system. Okay. So not 
self-driving at all. We didn't want to go there, but just to help cars help each other, essentially. So mm -hmm. the idea was that you have a car that's connected to the system and it's, it's driving along, like doing whatever it's doing, going where it's going, and it has a camera recording whatever it passes. If it happens to pass a stopped car that's on the road, it might be a good thing to be able to detect that, to tell other car cars, hey, look out, you, if you're in this lane, you might want to change lanes mm -hmm. already now, so you so okay. don't sort of get a surprise when you get to that stopped car. Mm -hmm. You could even have that indicate there's an accident or just con congestion. Mm -hmm. So stopped cars on the road is definitely something that you might want to tell other cars about. So the project was about trying to detect this, and there are a lot of steps to this. First, you, a, a video is, of course, a lot of images right. that come in one at a time. So the first step was trying to look at, okay, so how well can we detect the objects? Okay. And trying to compare the various object detection methods that were out there, see how fast are they, how accurate are they, all of these things, and also try to get an idea of how might we be able to improve them. Then. Subsequently, you have to be able to tell, is this part of the picture part of the road, or is it not part of the road? Because if, if it's not part of the road, if it's a parking lot, you don't care so much whether there are stopped cars and there, cars in there. So that's another thing. Thirdly, you'll want to be able to tell, is the car moving? So one thing is detecting the cars in each image. Another thing is seeing, so this is the same car that I just saw in the previous image. Right. And then estimating the distance, the difference in distance from when you saw it last, trying to estimate its speed. Okay. So this comes into object tracking, mm -hmm. which is seemed to, from the research that we were able to do, to be still quite immature compared to object detection. Okay. So for object detection, there are already a lot of methods, a lot of research out there. For object tracking, it seemed to be less solved. So we spent some time looking into that. And so, so in the end, we had a demo that was able to detect most cars and sort of give an estimate of, is it moving? How fast is it moving? Mm -hmm. And that was basically where we stopped. Okay. And were you exclusively trying to detect cars or other obstacles in the road? So we did want to detect other objects in the start of the project as well. Uh -huh. turned out that there were some difficulties with that because in traffic data sets you tend to have a lot of cars, right? <laughs> you don't have as many people, uh -huh. you don't have as many bikes, you don't have as many buses. Right. So your training data has a high imbalance okay. and that just makes it more difficult to learn those other classes that are not cars. Interesting. So in the end we, we ended up focusing more on just the car part of it okay. and not so much on detecting all the other classes that we were initially interested in. Okay. Oh, interesting. So you mentioned the object detection methods that you came across. Can you kind of summarize the, the state of object detection and what are the main methods and what you found as you compared them one to the other? So the methods that we looked into most were the ones that were quite recent at the time of the project, which was like in the beginning of this year. Okay. Uh, so at that time, there were a lot of what's referred to as single shot methods. So you have two versions of one called you only look once, mm -hmm. YOLO. There's one called single shot multi-box detector. Okay. And what these methods have in common is that they just look at the image once. Mm -hmm. 
So you'll take the image that you're trying to analyze and pass it through the model once to extract features. And then based on those features, you'll predict the coordinates of the bounding box as well as the class of the object within the bounding box. Okay. And you'll do that for a bunch of predefined boxes on the image. So before like seeing the image, you'll already have defined a large number of what's called prior boxes or default boxes. They have various names. Mm -hmm. So for one particular method, it's around 7,300 prior boxes. Mm -hmm. and for each of these boxes, you give a prediction of the class that it might contain and a correction to the predefined coordinates to match the object better. Okay. And that's sort of the general theme for these for these single shot methods. Okay. Is that they generally they'll predefine some large set of boxes and then detect objects relative to those boxes? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Interesting. And then on the object tracking side, what what was the method that you found and how did you what was your experience with it? How did it perform? So we ended up using a heuristic approach. So basically looking at the detected objects in a number of frames, I think we ended up with that around looking back at the past 20 frames, basically trying to match the current car that we're looking at to the car in the previous images that matches the color the best and okay. has the closest Euclidean distance and like those sorts of heuristics. Okay. And that turned out to work pretty well. Okay. And... You mentioned kind of doing a scan of the literature. Was that one of the methods that you found in the research or were you not able to get any of that stuff to work well? We've, yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> so the methods that we found and tried out, we spent quite a while trying to get them to work and it didn't really work out. So in the end, okay. we just thought, okay, let's try heuristically, see how it works. Mm -hmm. And it ended up working pretty well. So then in the interest of time, we went with that, and of course, we're hoping to get some of the more advanced methods to work in the future, but the heuristic approach turned out to really give quite good results. Which is also an important lesson for folks that actually have problems to solve. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's like I was observing that project mostly, and, and you know, of course, like, as, as, as you were just saying, right, it's like for an outsider... I was like, oh, this is clearly, you know, you need to use the you're using convolutional networks, but then like use recurrent on top of that because you're trying to track, you know, something and then maybe do the predictions for future frames and things of that sort, right? Yeah. And that was the kind of the common and actually, the, the, and I, you know, of course, that's what I searched for, right? And there is somebody who was working on a recurrent YOLO. We right? did try that actually. Uh, that was one of the things we tried. It and well, yeah, it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's what we mean that maybe, you know, this is something that will, as more people experiment and, and you know, it will, it will start evolving. And, and because object tracking is another great area for computer vision. That's a big challenge for folks that are implementing this stuff, like in real use cases, is that. You know, I've heard it described and I've repeated it as kind of overfitting on a data set, right? Like, hey, this works great for ImageNet, yeah, right? Yeah. But, you know, for another data set, it doesn't, it's hard to reproduce the results. And that's actually another issue that we ran into. So we took this pre-trained model that someone had on their GitHub repo okay. just to see how it worked and it didn't detect anything. So this was a segmentation <laughs> model and we wanted it to detect roads and it just didn't detect anything. And of course, in our images, we had a lot of roads because this was a traffic data set. So we were like, why is this? And one of the team members wrote the author and he was like, oh, well, that's because it didn't do data augmentation right. because I wanted to improve the performance as much as possible to the 
data set that I'm submitting this entry to. Yeah. Right. So, 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 so this was a competition, and he was just optimizing to these lighting conditions and so on that the data set had. Uh -huh. So when we retrained the model with data augmentation, it was actually able to detect a lot more road. Even we didn't add any data, we just used data augmentation. And what is data augmentation doing in this process? So I think some of the parameters that we tuned in this case was adjusting the brightness of the training images. Okay. So like we had the original training images that this guy had trained on, but then we added the same images but with different levels of brightness and other things okay. to the training set. So, so essentially to deal, things with, uh, deal with things like glare, nighttime, twilight, and all sorts of other lighting type situations, mm -hmm. right? So you just do a bunch of different transformations on the image to, you know, adjust the brightness by a few plus yeah. minus a few stops or maybe apply some cool Instagram filters. There or... you go. Well, actually, so, so yeah, it's, it's what's great. Once again, I love, the, love this field, right? And everything people are doing because there is a paper around this topic of data augmentation and best practices and much of has been codified in Keras and some of the other computer vision libraries. So you don't have to like do imagination. It's like, let's just apply this the bit kind of best, best in class image data augmentation and then we will just see what, see if it works. Of course, if it doesn't, then you, then you may have to go inside and, and tweak some things. Yeah. 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 Okay. Awesome. Anything else on that project? Not that I can think of right now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's and you know, I mean, I think the uh, I think another thing from just my observations was that international, like we, uh, you know, we all, it's like everybody has their local uh, in local perspective, right? And we have a, you know, kind of a U.S. based U.S. centric viewpoint on traffic and driving, and I think there's just a different set of things in countries, right? And one actually one good example of that is traffic signs, right? Is you know, like a stop sign is, so, you know, the concept is somewhat universal, but it is different in other countries. Right. So these are the type of things that you have to account for if you're trying to do more like sign detection or other, other types of things. Mm -hmm. right? yeah. Excellent. Excellent. So you mentioned a project called Lost and Found that was for a logistics company. Yeah. Yeah. And that one, you know, as much as this kind of object detection type things, that one had a little bit of a different type of challenge. And that is that type of thing that we're trying to find, right? So it's like, imagine you're shipping packages and then, you know, somehow the package loses its tracking, label rips off or box break. And then, so this company finds the item and now it's like, okay, what is this? Because a lot of times it's not really clearly. Or you as a customer will call and say, I'm missing like, you know, a brown pair of shoes, you know, with this, this and this, you know, and somebody's manually going through all the stuff to find it, right? Can just yeah it's a very tedious process and so how do you build a system that could give you like you know based on some description and i know google image search does this great but you know we don't have you know it's not available it's not available as an api even you know it's a, google's not uh, giving it to everybody and so there are some cloud apis but still not this the point i'm trying to make is that the universe of items you, you could lose is infinite right yeah. it's not like 10 class 90 class 9000 class it's yeah. like infinite so doing object detection model that will say, oh, we'll just be, we'll just detect the label of the item and, and we'll just be able to find it. So the approach was a little bit of a combination of transfer learning and feature matching as opposed to like feature detect, feature engineering, feature learning. So, you know, one thing that customers do when they ask the question is they actually could provide a photo from the internet or they may actually have the item. 
And, you know, this all sounds like probably somewhat easy for commercial items, right? But if you think about industrial items or niche things or collectibles and stuff like that, that's where you really start getting into the, the problems uh, finding these items. Well, certainly um, you're not going to have them just sitting around in your training data. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the way to kind of tackle this problem is like an image search problem, right? And you previously, previous generation techniques were doing, you know, a lot of the handcrafted features. There were algorithms, algorithms like SIFT, SURF, and ORB, and some of these previous generation feature detection algorithms, I believe. If you, you open SIFT, SURF. Yeah, SIFT, SURF, and ORB. These are all acronyms for yeah, feature, feature detection in previous generation computer vision. Matter of fact, I think, and you know, of course, I don't know the details, but when I look at it, the Amazon app, when you open up the visual search, I think they are not using deep learning. They are using that previous generation because of the dots it's showing. And based on just my, my, my knowledge, that's exactly how it works. So I, I don't know if somebody, maybe somebody from Amazon uh, can verify or maybe not. <laughs> they probably don't want to. But yeah, so, so we were like, well, we don't have those. One of them, I forget which one, is actually proprietary. So we can't use it uh, you know, without getting a license and all sorts of challenges like that. And we, we all have deep learning now. So being able to extract using the, some of the state-of-the-art models uh, such as ResNet or Inception and you know, just, just really thinking about this problem. It's like, well, what are those models doing? Right? You have high level, high dimensional data images, and the point of generalization is to come up with low level features that you can generalize so that it will work on not just that data and on a much wider data. So, well, why don't we just try to take our, our target and the source and essentially extract those low level features and create a feature store, right? So, the next time you have to search for something, you say, okay, let me, it's, it's like, it's almost like fingerprint matching type. If that's one way to think about it, right? It's like creating the fingerprint of the, of the search. And then we have the entire database of fingerprints. And you just say, okay, find the one that's the closest match. And we didn't have to get it 100%, right? Because there was a human in the loop that somebody would say, okay, all right, I can tell between these five images that this is the one, right? Did you define your features a priori or were the, did the we, we use training process? Yeah, we just use it. We, we didn't do any training. We just okay. used a pre-trained model, for example, ResNet or, or Inception. We removed some of, the la- some of the classification layers because we weren't interested in the classification, right? Because right. if you look at the deep learning model, that's what the lower la- layers are doing. It's yeah. eventually after the features are, you get to the low level, you then do, a cl- you do your classic classification. And then, so we said, we're not interested in that. Let's freeze the model at certain level and then, then see what the features are coming out of that. Store those and then let's do the same thing for the search candidate. And then the object tracking, there is a lot of similarities as far as the Euclidean distance type thing where you're trying to make sure that it's the same car from the previous image to this image. Right. And then so once you extract the features, you try to do a distance and see how close, closely they match. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially what you're trying to do is, is that you, in this case, we were doing a cosine distance between the, the, both of the features, feature vectors, or the kind of the customer's feature vector and then the entire database of images, objects that we have to find the closest ones. So that's kind of like, you know, in a nutshell, that's, that's how that problem was solved. On that one, did you determine where you were gonna freeze your network based on experimentation or was it more kind of intuitive, you know, this is where the classification starts so we're just gonna stop here? Uh, so yeah, so yeah, if you ever kind of uh, dissect one of these models, it's all, you can read all the layers and yeah, you can tell which layers is when the kind of the feature extraction stops and the classification starts typically around 
kind of densely connecting and softmax classifier. Those are kind of the later later stages. So once you start kind of stop your convolution layers, you know, that's when you can that's this when you can stop. And yeah, we you know, we so we try to experiment with like like till the very end or somewhere in the middle, you know, because these models are also the state of the art have 50 layers, you know, like many layers. So it's like, how, you know, because we were not really interested in doing the classification. So at what level of feature, raw features that, that we, our, our search works at a good performance? Yeah, right. Because once again, like if you get to like really low level, then our search results will be like all over the place, right? Yeah. So we want to capture at some some good level. So they're not a not a scientific way. It's very much was a trial and error to come up with where it was giving us the best results. So I, I was actually wondering just now, did you use uh, features from many layers at once, or did you pick just one layer and take the features from, from that? Yeah, after, after several layers, so like 25 or 30 layers, we said, okay, now let's see what the output of the image is, you know, the feature vector, and said, no, this is the one we want to use. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking inspired by these uh, object detection methods that tend to use features from different layers to capture both large and small objects in the image. But I guess it's not so important if you know that you have one object in the image and you're just trying to find that one object, right? Yeah, typically, the, the so, so what I didn't mention is that this company, when they get the item, they take photos of it, right? And multiple angles and everything. So typically, that's the only thing that's in there. Once again, the all classic problems still are there, like data cleaning and, and background removal and all sorts of things like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. And you mentioned one more, which was a fraud detection app for a, a bank. Yeah, yeah. And, and did you want to talk about it? I can also talk about it, you know. Uh, if you could start to talk. Yeah. So I, I wasn't on the project. <laughs> okay. I, I know about yeah. the project, but yeah. yeah. I, I just felt like because you were, it's in Denmark, right? <laughs> um, and and uh, yeah, is this, I think more details can be found because it's the video of this project. There was a talk at the O'Reilly AI conference in New York in June, okay. and it's available online. So those who are interested into this technique, I think what's really neat about this is that in the previous two cases, we talked about computer vision, right? Which is kind of the, the cool factor, right? Because everybody is excited about being, being able to do things with images, right? right? But now this is, here comes like fraud detection, which is, you know, to the common person, it's like, who cares, right? As long as my credit card works and nobody, you know, nobody defrauds me. But banks, of course, are very much uh, concerned with that, right? So, so in this case, we were like, well, I mean, so of course, fraud detection is not new, right? People have been doing this for, for decades, all sorts of things like human-curated curated rules, right? It's like you swipe a card in San Francisco and then you swipe it in, you know, Bombay, or Mumbai, right? It's like, obviously, there is a problem, right? And, and so, so, you know, it's, you know, things like that. You can always have those handcrafted rules, but, then, you know, those can become like you have... 20,000 rules and it's like, yeah. you know, it becomes a real cumbersome process. You start applying some traditional machine learning aspects to it. So you do a lot of feature engineering on the data to say, okay, these are the, these are the features that contribute to fraud and we should flag for that, right? And then we are like, well, what, what are the th ways you can improve upon this? Now we have deep learning, feature learning. Are there ways to actually improve upon the model? And so, uh, so you know, we, we said, well, Let's try a couple of things. So one of the things, and this is a classic like the object tracking example as well. Right? So it's like, well, what is the first thing I would do? And well, most people with transactional data or sequential data, the go-to technique is using some kind of a recurrent model, right? Where LSTM or something like that, right? So that you have the recent history and then you can be, you should be able to tell, oh, this is fraudulent or it's about to be fraudulent. 
So we tried that and, and actually there is the model result, if I recall correctly, I, I, there's a chart in that talk which shows you all the different approaches. I think it was on par with the traditional machine learning. So, so not really, it's not promising. But then it's like, well, a creative way of like, well, what if we could apply some of the vision-based techniques? So it's, uh, you know, vision, there are certain properties that are necessary for a convolutional model to work. Shift invariant statistics and locally correlated values. Those are the two things that famously Jan LeCun tweeted out a few months ago, which I remember very well, right? I'm not having come from research, right? And those things really made a lot of sense to me. It's like, okay, all right. So those are the properties you need because traditionally the type of data we have, even in, in credit card transaction, is just some kind of a time series. You know, you have you have amount and 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 location and all sorts of things like that. But not like a picture, right? And you know, this technique is detailed in, in if you, you know, even five minutes of that talk, there is a couple of slides on it, which will just like visually, it's very intuitive, is to come up with a feature map of the transactions using some, some history. So then idea is to create like a visual image of the recent transactions and then feed it through the convolutional neural network to see if you could detect fraud. When you think about this, and this is something that I, I, would, I would ponder others to think about, right, is that think about this as, as how we would do something like that, right? And one example I always talk about is that people who sit in like operations controls, right, and they're looking at those 50 screens, right, <laughs> or even traders when they look at like all these charts and all these things, right, you know, they're visually also trying to look for some changes in signals that will allow, say, oh, you know, I need to take some action. And the idea is very similar here, right? Is that if we could convert, I mean, there's data behind those charts, right? If we could somehow create the, and we, we just like, we'll create charts out of the data and then feed it through the, through the convolutional neural network and then tell it what abnormal looks like, right? And then now I'll ask it to flag it. So uh, it's super interesting. I think those traders would be a lot less effective if they were looking at a spreadsheet. Yeah, well, we know, we know that, right? It's like, it's, it's, yeah, it's like, imagine if I gave you like a trend chart versus like, all the data in a table, right? right? How quickly could you make a decision, right? And yeah. So put like that, it's super intuitive that a neural net would, you know, a vision-focused neural net would be effective in solving these kinds of problems. Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great, I love talking about this because it's a great example of, of applying some of these kind of what the research there and the progress that we are making to, in computer vision towards a problem that you wouldn't think is in that realm, right? And you can talk about, I mean, you know, and when you start thinking about this way, there are many more things that open up, like, you know, anomaly detection and anything that you can essentially you can visualize, like if you have like a heat map, right? So yeah, sure, we can generate a heat map of a lot of data, right? I think the, the big trick over there is that you have to be consistent in the way you feed the data. Because remember the properties of the convolutional neural networks require that it's like, think of it, it's, it is an image. If you start shifting around the bits, the image will stop making sense, right? And that's what we are really banking on, that there's an image that, could, that makes sense to us, and we are trying to find those patterns. So it is very important that you don't use another technique the next time around. <laughs> you keep the feature map same for the, even throughout the production cycle, right? Not, not change it around, not change the, the sequence of transactions and, and, and things like that. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, it's detailed much more in that talk if anybody's interested. Very, we'll try very, to track down the link to yeah, that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, these are all really, really interesting use cases. Thank you both for taking the time to kind of talk through them. Is there anything else that you wanted to mention? Either of you? 
nothing comes to mind right now. <laughs> Probably something will in like half an hour. Yeah, of um, course, of yeah. course. I'll take Sam's role and I'll ask you, what, ha what has your impression been in this, I guess, day or half or so far uh, at the conference? Well, I have enjoyed it personally. I think there are a lot of really interesting talks and some that I would have liked to go to, but that were just filled up by the time I got there. Oh, wow. Like there was one on what to do if you don't have a lot of data, because there are some ways around that I gather. And something that a lot of people are starting to talk about as well is the use of unsupervised learning. Mm -hmm. I don't remember the details, but I ran into this really interesting paper where they started, so they, they wanted to train some kind of image analysis, object detection, something method. I don't recall the details. The insight that they had was that, well, how do children learn to associate shapes that sort of belong together? So mm -hmm. if a child sees a cat the first time, it may not know that the legs and the head and sort of everything goes together mm -hmm. um, into being a cat. But then when the child sees the cat move a lot, it sort of realizes, okay, so this is a cat and these parts belong together. So this is one mm. object. So this is essentially learning how to detect a whole object. And there is some research that shows that this is indeed how children learn to recognize shapes or people who regain sight. or like that There is actually some research showing that this is how it might work for humans. Mm -hmm. So based on that insight, what these authors did was just show videos to a deep learning model, and it did it did learn to recognize objects in this way. Oh, wow. And then once, of course, once it learned how to recognize objects, then it's easier for it to learn that, okay, so this object is a cat. Okay. This object is a house. So, Interesting. So, yeah, so, yeah, so, so I like thought a... that was a really cool application of using unsupervised learning to get, gain momentum. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, like a little bit of a roundabout way of going around the labeling aspect. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty neat. And I think that's a, it's, a, it's great, you know, some of these research moving forward around... You know, because we, we've been talking about big data related, you know, machine learning, right, with deep learning. But there is a lot of data class imbalance is a huge, huge thing, right? Just that there's, there's some places where there's just not enough things to detect, you know, how do you handle those things? Yeah, so it's very fascinating. And, and I'll say that for me today, it was really fascinating, the keynote from Andrew Ng, right? Kind of very non-traditional, right? <laughs> you know, he broke, broke out the whiteboards and I would recommend a lot of people to check out that because I really felt that, of course, you know, he is well respected and things like that, but the things that he highlighted, I really felt they really hit home because, you know, you, you, you know, of course, people give great keynotes and I think they are good, but I think he really said, these are the real things that you need to, talk, you need to worry about or look at that are very relevant versus let's just try to ride, you know, increase the hype curve further and further, right? I thought that was very, you know, that's something that I know I will kind of reference several times watching the video because he really brought some of the key points out there. Awesome, yeah. awesome, great. Well, thanks both of you. Thank you for yeah. having us come. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you know, long time listener and finally hearing my voice, you know, <laughs> it's gonna be weird. <laughs> so thank you so much for uh, having us. Awesome, enjoy the yeah. rest of the conference. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and, of course, for your ongoing feedback and support. For more information on Mo and Laura or any of the other topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 54. For the rest of this series, head over to twimlai.com slash AISF 2017. And please, 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 
Send us any questions or comments that you may have for us or our guests via Twitter, at TwimmelAI or at Sam Charrington, or leave a comment on the show notes page. There are a ton of great conferences coming up through the end of the year. To stay up to date on which events we'll be attending, and hopefully to meet us there, check out our new events page at twimlai.com slash events, T-W-I-M-L-A-I dot com slash events. Thanks again for listening and catch you next time.